Good evening. I'm Downing Thomas, Associate Provost and Dean of International Programs here at the University of Iowa. And I want to welcome you to a special edition of World Canvas to kick off International Education Week. A joint initiative of the U.S. Departments of State and Education, International Education Week is a time to recognize the importance of global engagement of all kinds and to encourage everyone to be involved. International Education Week recognizes the importance of study abroad and student exchange, of developing a more globally oriented curriculum in our schools, and of participating in what President Eisenhower called people-to-people -people activities, hosting students in your home, for example. Eisenhower said in 1956, when he launched the People to People initiative, and I quote, peaceful relations between nations require mutual respect between individuals. President Mason was called away unexpectedly and sends her sincere regrets. Provost and Executive Vice President Barry Butler generously agreed to rearrange his busy schedule to be with us this evening and to introduce the 2011 recipient of the University of Iowa's International Impact Award. Provost Butler. Thank you, Downing. It's my great honor and pleasure to be a part of this presentation of the University of Iowa International Program's International Impact Award. And it's my special delight to help present it to an incredible UI alumna and international figure, Dr. Peterson, one of the world's leading archivists. Dr. Peterson grew up in Iowa and earned her PhD in history from the University of Iowa in 1975. She soon began working at the National Archives and rose through the ranks to serve as acting archivist, archivist of the United States, where she was a staunch advocate for advances in preserving electronic records and for supporting open access to federal records and the early declassification of presidential papers. Dr. Peterson retired from the National Archives in 1995, but she did anything but retire from her work. Hired by philanthropist George Soros as the founding executive director of the Open Society Archives in Budapest, she led efforts to modernize and democratize archives in Eastern Europe. She later moved to Geneva as the Director of Archives and Records Management for the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. Dr. Peterson's work has become only more courageous as time has gone on. In 2005, she was one of the first on the scene in Guatemala at the discovery of a massive amount of records belonging to that country's brutal national police, which committed atrocities during Guatemala's Civil War from 1960 to 1996. She has retur returned to that country several times to assist archivists in organizing these records to document crimes and prosecute per perpetrators. As you can imagine, this is very dangerous work. Undaunted, Dr. Peterson has gone to other parts of the world on similar missions, and most recently in Sierra Leone. Dr. Peterson's generosity and dedication to the University of Iowa has been tremendous, and we're grateful. She has long made herself available for consultation with generations of Iowa students who have come to Washington for research. But she is giving back in extraordinary ways here on campus as well. 
Each year for the past five years, Trudy Peterson has traveled to Iowa City at her own expense to offer a short course on archives to the University of Iowa graduate students. This year's course was entitled Opening Archives Around the World, Drafting New International Standards, offering our students the incredible opportunity for an early look at the new International Code of Ethics. Dr. Peterson is chairing the committee that is presenting these new standards to, to UNESCO. She also makes frequent presentations and visits with undergraduate groups and classes, inspiring and in influencing our students in their work for years to come. Dr. Dr. Trudy Peterson lives the name of this award to its fullest, International Impact. We thank her for her creative, courageous, and tireless work on behalf of the world's people. And we express our deepest appreciation for her. It is my great honor to present this year's International Impact Award to Dr. Trudy Peterson. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be honored by your alma mater. I want to say thank you to a couple of other things. Um, I think it's important to know that we're people who matter, of course, and I want to thank Ellis Hawley, who directed my dissertation, and of course I want to thank my husband Gary, without whom home fires would never stay burning. Uh, this is, of course, 11-11-11, uh, and it is the day when we remember the war dead. War dead are an important part of our history, but war dead are all over the world, not only ours. And as we commemorate this Veterans Day for our people, we also should remember, I think, the dead that have been occurred, occurring in wars all over the world for us. I'm extremely grateful for the award because it gives a little more visibility to the question of the importance of archives in defending, protecting, and asserting human rights around the world. My principal work these days is to try to persuade people that archives matter, that preserving archives helps us preserve human rights, and for that, I am extremely grateful for the recognition. Thank you. Well, and I express my congratulations as well. Um, tell everyone here that uh, you are now listening to World Canvas. I'm Joan Kerr, and uh, we're extremely honored to have this opportunity as we kick off International Education Week to recognize you and the fine work you've done. So before we go too much further, I'd like to mention that World Canvas is a production of international programs at the University of Iowa, and uh, we're coming to you from the beautiful Senate chamber here on the campus of the university. Our production partners are University of Iowa TV, the University 
University of Iowa Pentecrest Museums, KRUIFM, and Information Technologies Services. This program is being recorded for statewide television and radio distribution over UITV, Iowa Public Radio, and KRUIFM, and it will also be available along with all programs in the series as a free podcast on iTunes. So, Trudy, um, we've heard a little bit about your work here and a little bit about your life, but I know you're an Iowa girl. You grew up in western Iowa. Take us back all those years ago and, and tell us about your, your career path. When did you decide that you were interested in history and what you later uh, did with archives? I grew up on a farm that was settled by, by, by my great-grandparents. And so growing up in the house of my great-grandparents, you're just naturally interested in history. I listened to my grandmother tell the stories of riding the breaking plow as they broke the sod on the land. And she would say, you know, you'd ride the breaking plow and you'd see the snakes roll out as the earth turned. You know, how can you not be interested in history? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then you, uh, you went to college, and I know that you have a master's from here and a PhD from mm -hmm. the University of Iowa. Right. And this interest in archives came about when? <laughs> when I needed a job. Uh, well, it's the truth. I can't make this sound better than that. Uh, I went through undergraduate school, and I thought I was going to be a lawyer. And I actually went to law school for a semester, and I found out I hated it. Sorry to all the lawyers in the audience, but I really did. I didn't know I was a humanist. I just didn't know that. And after a semester of law school, I said, I, I can't do this. I, I just don't want to do this for my life. So I needed a job, and I came back here. Um, Gary and I were dating. I came to see him. He was at the law school. We went to a Christmas party. Somebody told me about a job at the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library, and I applied for it and got it. And walked in, didn't know much about it, enrolled myself in the history grad program here, and thought, wow. Somebody's going to pay me to read other people's mail? <laughs> this is terrific, you know? And you, you hold out your hands. I would do this all the time when I took tours around at the National Archives. I'd say, would you like to hold a Tom Jefferson? And I'd say, OK, hold out your hands. And then I would pull out something that had a Jefferson signature. Usually we used Siemens protection certificates, which aren't very important, but they did have the signatures. And so, you know, I'd say, now hold your hand real steady, and I'll lay it on you. And people say, oh, I've touched something that a president touched. It's wonderful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Well, in the uh, letter recommending you for this award, nominating you for the mm -hmm. award, a friend of yours and a fellow um, mm -hmm. historian, Linda Kerber, wrote really uh, just a compelling letter of recommendation. And I would like to read just a very little bit of it. Linda Kerber, who is, by the way, not only history professor, but she's also the Mae Broadbeck Professor mm -hmm. of Liberal Arts and Sciences, and that's a very important thing to note. But Linda wrote, Trudy Peterson is one of the most distinguished graduates of the University of Iowa. One of the leading archivists in the world, she creatively links the skills of the archivist to the strengthening of human rights, often at real risk to her own personal safety. 
It is not overstatement to say that she has been inventing a new international role, flying all over the globe to appear where archives are in danger of decay, destruction, and deterioration. In Rwanda, Guatemala, Sierra Leone, to assist their protectors in organizing and safeguarding them. I do not think it possible to overestimate the impact of her innovation and her courage in the United States, in Europe, in Latin America, Africa, and through her work for the UN, literally throughout the world. At a time in her life when others are phasing themselves into quiet retirement, she is regularly placing herself at real risk to safeguard the world's memories of itself. And I think that phrase, safeguarding the world's memories of itself, is sort of an astonishingly wonderful phrase. And uh, true, I guess, isn't it? You, we have to have records of things. Yes, we absolutely do. I think when we think about archives and human rights, we ought to ask ourselves three questions. How would I prove that I exist? How would I prove that I am owed these things, pensions, benefits? How would I prove what I own? And if you think about that, then you get right back to records. You get right back to documents. And you have to safeguard them. Now, just because I've said that, it doesn't mean that all those have to be saved forever. Your medical record needs to be saved as long as you're alive. Unless you're in an experimental treatment or something, it probably doesn't need to be saved forever. But you really need it saved while you're alive. On the other hand, we have things that are so important for the history of the world and for documenting the advances and the retreats of human rights and civility among us that we really have to figure those out and we really do have to safeguard them. So you always have those two things going on. What do I have to save to make sure that living people get their rights? And what do I have to save to make sure we document what happened among us? Well, we are going to be talking about human rights quite a bit during the program mm -hmm. here. And certainly some of the projects you've been involved in that were described earlier by Provost Butler um, involve serious human rights issues. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk with Michelle Gobay a little bit about Central America and about mm -hmm. Guatemala. Um, what would you say is the most complex assignment you've taken on? Well, the most complex assignment is maybe the one that I'd say is the most rewarding. You have assignments that you do that don't work also. I don't want you to think this always works. I've done jobs where I'm, I'm sure when I walked out the door, nothing happened. Uh, but I, I did do work for three years with the police archives, taking uh, uh, totally untrained people and training them enough that we could arrange and describe the records of the police archives. And that has been enormously gratifying. They are now using those records to prosecute um, people who committed crimes during the long civil war in Guatemala. Last October, a year ago, two policemen were convicted um, of serious, serious crimes during the war. They introduced 750 documents in the trial. 660 came from the police archives. Mm. That makes you feel good. Mm -hmm. So that's by far the most complex. The day-to-day um, the -day grinding um, one is I do a monthly newsletter on archives and human rights. And so I do, um, each month I look at the news, try to see what issues have come up around the world that involve 
records and archives and protecting human rights. And then within the first three to five days of the month, I try to get that out. And all I'm trying to do is raise awareness of people that this is important. You can't take your eye off this ball. If you don't watch out, those records are going to disappear. And so that's not the most complex, but it is the most time-consuming. And that discipline of every month, as you know, getting this kind of thing assembled and out is, is uh, what I consider my contribution to awareness raising. Mm -hmm. Well, I know now that you're working on, along with the International Council on Archives and developing new standards of ethics for archivists around the world. What, what is that project? It's not exactly ethics. This is uh, 10 principles of access to archives. And uh, we're trying to set a floor under the world's archives to say, these are the kinds of things you must provide to the public so they know what you have. This is the kind of access you should get. Um, these 10 principles are out for comment now. Uh, anyone who wants to see them on the website of the International Council on Archives. Everyone is not only invited but encouraged to comment on them, and they will be voted on in August of next year at a, an annual general meeting of the International Council. Um, there are 10 principles, four pages. doesn't take you long to read them, I promise you. There's lots of other stuff. Principles are four pages. And one of them speaks directly to the need to provide access to records that support human rights. Mm -hmm. Well, um, before we bring Michelle up in just a moment here, I know that you have, uh, you've done such interesting work here, working with the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions and mm. testifying or, or offering mm. advice to the International mm. Criminal Court of Justice. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell us something about either of those experiences? Um, sure. I was uh, in Budapest uh, working with the Open Society Archives, and I got a call one day saying, would you go to South Africa and give some advice to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission there as to what they should do with their records? And I said, sure. Uh, and so I did that. And then after I did that, I got called and asked, could my report from South Africa be used for Peru? And I suddenly realized, you know, I need to just sit down and, and write down what people need to think about as a truth commission comes to an end because they have assembled a great deal of information about what happened in the country during a really traumatic period and this needs to be preserved. So I, I wrote the book then for truth commissions and uh, I, I did some work for the truth commission in Honduras over the past year, just ending this summer. But out of that, I was talking to somebody and they said, but what are you doing about the international criminal courts? And I said, wait a minute, courts are a whole different thing. I'm doing truth commissions. And the person said, gotta do, you gotta take a look at these. These are really important. So then I did a work on that and then got asked to do things like a work with the special court for Sierra Leone. I went back and forth to Sierra Leone quite a few times and I'd, I've done some work for the international court for Rwanda and so mm -hmm. on. So. You know, one thing kind of leads to another. Yeah. Well, we very briefly mentioned that some of this work is, in fact, quite dangerous, trying to protect records that certain groups would just assume, you know, never see the light of day. I'm not the brave one. The brave one are the people on the ground who stay there and do it every day. I get to fly in and out, you know? I can always come home to a safe place. Yeah. Um, the people who uh, try to sit in Guatemala and do this every day, or 
the people who are uh, in Beirut. I've been uh, trying to help an NGO in Beirut this year. Uh, who sit there, two blocks from Hezbollah headquarters, whose back wall was blown out by an Israeli bomb in the 2006 bombing. Those are the brave people. Well, I'd like to invite Michel Kobat to come join us now. And as he comes up, I will tell all of you that he mm. teaches in the history department here at the university, and he focuses on modern Latin America, Central America, and U.S.-Latin American relations. And uh, he's also one of the co-directors of the Latin American Studies Program within International Programs. So happy to have you here, Michelle. Thanks. 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 And I thought that perhaps you two historians could talk a little bit about what it actually <laughs> means when, when you go to do your research. What could you do if there were no existing documents? Well, let's hope this is not going to be boring, right? A discussion <laughs> with historians. But first, let me express just how much, in the name of the whole history department, how much we appreciate all your help and all the support you've uh, shown for us, particularly the short course in archives that Provost Butler mentioned that you've been teaching for the last five years. Um, graduate students really appreciate that, and also the faculty. So thank you very much. Um, as, as Joe and also Provost Butler has mentioned, you've basically got you. you you received your PhD here in US history at the University of Iowa. And usually when, I think most people think that because historians and archivists often work in the same building, the archive, that we're always on the same page. Um, that was my starting assumption as well until I start working in an archive and I realized that that's not necessarily the case. Um, so I was curious to know, given your background um, in history and also that you then later became such a stellar career um, as an archivist, in many ways, you bridge both worlds, and I was wondering if um, how your background, how your training in history has helped or shaped your career as an archivist. I think it's essential. It's what I rely on. It's my bedrock. Um, I rely on it in two rather different ways, actually. Um, one is I really believe that as an archivist, decides what to save and what to toss. And we're making a single decision for history. If we throw it away, it's gone. You know, um, it isn't like you have two different copies of the Des Moines Register and you can throw one away and save one. If you decide you're going to throw away a part of the secret police records from Egypt, they're gone. They're gone forever. And so I think history helps you understand the long-run importance of that documentation. Sure, we can all make a case to save everything all the time, but you have to ask the second question, that is, how likely is it that it's gonna be used? How important is this as a source? But if you're a historian and you're a thinking historian and you think about the wide variety of historical research we can do to help us understand how we got to where we are today, that's what you need when you're making those fatal decisions on what to save and what to toss. It also helps you then in the other key thing, which is how do I tell you what I've saved? And I think you do better description if you know from the other side of the desk what it's like to do research and what a researcher needs to know. So that's one. The other thing is that in, in my work, what I've been doing for the past 10 years around the world, I desperately need, as I go into a country, to know something about its history. And Michelle, I called you before I went to Honduras and said, what are the three books I need to read? <laughs> I've, I've uh, called 
uh, Jim Giblin here and said, I'm going to go do a job in Tanzania. What do I need to read? Because I don't pretend I'm going to be a historian of that country, but I also think that I'm going to do a better job helping those people help themselves if I understand something about where they came from. And nothing will do that for me as well as a really informed history. And so I depend on the work of historians to help me be a better uh, teacher in a country like that. You mentioned that um, as an archivist, you try to avoid making mm -hmm. fateful decisions. Um, historians, when they sometimes go to the archive, they also make fateful mm -hmm. decisions. Um, and since also quite a number of graduate students here at the University of Iowa in the history department are interested in issues of human rights, as well as a number of undergraduates, um, what can those kind of, what can historians who are interested in human rights, what can they learn from archivists like you? I think that the principal thing to remember when we talk about human rights is it is not only crimes against humanity, genocide, and really horrible activities. If we're truly thinking about human rights, and you use the Universal Declaration of Human Rights as the base guide, that's really organized in three sections. There are a series of rights that are basically personal security and judicial rights. And then there are civil and political rights. And then there are economic, social, and cultural rights. And I am concerned, and, and I am guilty of it too, because of the way I've worked and the things I've talked about. I think we narrow our conversation too much when we think of human rights and think of genocide and crimes against humanity. And we need to broaden that frame out. And that's what historians can help us do, because historians look at the breadth of humankind and the breadth of what they do and can say, yes, we're looking at judicial issues, we're looking at uh, civil and political issues. We're looking at those economic, social, and cultural issues. And that's what I think we have to have as the discussion. Are those some of the aspects that you try to teach graduate students here in the history department when you come and offer your short course in archives? Um, well, the short course in archives does two different things. We try always to talk about a fundamental issue in archives, and then we try to talk about some hot topic. Uh, and last year, the hot topic was the really awful medical experiments that the U.S. and Guatemala collaborated on uh, in the immediate post-World War II period. And, you know, it's not genocide, certainly, but it is indeed a fundamental human rights issue of that, you know, our government was guilty of participating in, in my view. And we made mistakes, uh, and then we made mistakes as archivists managing the records, and I think we made mistakes as historians talking about it. And so we've got a lot to learn out of that. So that's what I try to do. I, it's, it's raising awareness of the great variety of issues that uh, human rights is involved in. I think for most people it is a bit surprising that an archivist would be so interested in this issue um, of raising awareness of human rights, promoting, defending human rights. What got you interested in this, in this aspect in the first place? I assume that your stay in Washington, D.C., working for the U.S. National Archives had something to do with it? Well, sure. Any archivist works with the fundamental records, birth, death, marriage, 
land records, that sort of thing, which is all human rights. Um, a key thing for me was I was appointed to the U.S.-Russia MIA POW Commission in the 1990s, and so I dealt with the MIA POW families and uh, understood in a very direct way what closure means to a family who just doesn't know what has happened to this person. And uh, that has served me very well as I've gone into these horrific situations. To use Guatemala again, the Civil War, there's about 200,000 dead. There's about 50,000 missing, you know? That's just, just horrific in a little country. Uh, the numbers of missing in Lebanon in the Civil War are at the moment uncounted, but, you know, again, a horrific thing for a small country. You mentioned Guatemala, and um, as you pointed out, it's very difficult to work in Guatemala, um, including up to the present. Um, one of the main obstacles is the military. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about your experience in Guatemala, particularly, you know, if you had any relationship with the military, if the military sort of shaped the kind of work you carried out in Guatemala. Uh, no, I, the military has not shaped the work I do in Guatemala. I've dealt exclusively with police archives. I knew perfectly well going into Guatemala that the police control the border and if they wanted to stop me, they could uh, at any time and just say, no, you can't get in the country. Um, I was doing training and I really believed that, that the police probably didn't understand the power of what I was doing, mm -hmm. that organizing and making mm -hmm. archives available, you know, ended up convicting people. Um, and they would at times assign a police man or woman, usually a woman, to follow me around and take notes on what I said. And I was always convinced they didn't have a clue as to what I was really talking about. But, and you know, I can't imagine what those notebooks looked like, what they thought I was saying. We'd have to go to the archive. <laughs> <laughs> the archives. Um, but no, I didn't do that. I have done an archival analysis of what um, is called the Diario Militar, which is a, basically a, a scrapbook of pictures and identifications of people that at least one unit of the military disappeared. And um, so I did do that. But other than that, I haven't done military things. Guatemala is indeed uh, a place that is very, very difficult, as you know. Um, one aspect in Guatemala is that um, people are still wondering about the role the U.S. played in, um, in all these events. Right. Um, and I know that as head of, acting head of the U.S. National Archives, that you did have some encounters with people who are trying to declassify hmm. U.S. documents. And I was wondering if you could, without spilling any state secrets, um, <laughs> Whether you could talk a bit more about that experience, because uh, when I teach a course on U.S.-Latin American relations, uh, students do encounter these documents, and they are just always puzzled why there's so many places marked with black. Mm -hmm. um, let me make a distinction between national security classified, that is secret, top secret, confidential, and other kinds of restrictions, which are generally privacy, business, and so forth. Um, the archivists in the U.S. National Archives uh, have almost no control over the national security classifications. In really odd cases, you do. But in most uh, circumstances, if you can 
come upon a document that is marked secret and it's stamped uh, that way and it comes from the FBI, it's got to go back to the FBI and they have to make that decision. The archivist can't control that. The archivists control privacy, uh, to some extent business confidentiality, and so forth. Uh, yes, I think the government is entirely too secretive. I think most big organizations become too protective of their material. And yes, I wish a lot more uh, was made available more quickly. Um, the Obama administration has put a number of things in place. There's a National Declassification Center that is trying to work through some of these older materials. Uh, but yes, we, we vastly overclassify, and we classify for much too long periods. Do you have a sense why this is the case? Um, I think some uh, officials believe that the only way to keep it out of the public is to mark it with a classification marking. Um, and I think also the people who make the markings never think about how they're going to be taken off. And they rotate out, they go on to another job, and they leave behind this pile of things that are all classified, and they walk away from it. Uh, and so it ends up that the archivists have to figure out how to get those things off. But overclassification is a, a real problem in the U.S. government. Have you encountered similar difficulties in Guatemala? Um, in Guatemala, it's interesting. Um, I worked in the FBI. I did the appraisal. I was part of the team that did the appraisal of the records of the FBI under court order uh, in the 80s. And, you know, J. Edgar Hoover never thought that somebody like me would be reading his mail. <laughs> and so what you find among police and other security services is they really believe that it's so inside that they're never going to get people like, like me in there. Um, the other thing I would, and so um, it's quite comparable when you look at police in Guatemala and the FBI. And by the way, we did find uh, FBI fingerprint training manuals in uh, the Guatemala police records. Um, but I, I would say to you that police archives typically are very well organized. People have asked me this week about Tunisia, where I was in June, um, Libya, Egypt. Obviously, I don't know what those police archives look like, though I'm going to guess they're pretty well organized. And I will tell you, in Ethiopia, the DERG, when that uh, group was in power. Um, apparently those archives are very well organized because it was uh, assisted by the East Germans who came and helped them set up the uh, filing system. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I'm, I'm going to say thank you to both of you for talking with us about you, such an interesting topic and, and your work, really inspiring and wonderful. And thank you so much for giving everything back to the university that you have. So thank you, Michelle, for joining us. No, and thanks. thank you very much, Trudy, for being our guest. Thank thanks, you. Thanks. So uh, now we are going to offer something special to Trudy and her husband, a musical uh, salute. And uh, we have two wonderful artists from the University of Iowa who are going to join us. Uh, Ellen Huckleberry is the pianist, and he's generally the silent partner, doesn't like to talk up here. But Benjamin Coelho, the bassoonist, is uh, going to tell us what they're going to play. And I'd like to say thank you both of you, uh, to both of you for um, you know, helping to celebrate this uh, event with us tonight. Thanks so much. I feel so privileged to be in the presence of Dr. 
here at Peterson. And we're going to be performing two movements of a piece by Peter Shickley. The, some of you might know him as a PDQ bar, who yeah. is an Iowan composer. Right. He was born, I think, believe in Sioux City. Or, yeah. yeah. And Ames. I think he grew Ames. up in Ames, but yeah. yeah. And it's called uh, Games. And the third movement, Alan, what is the third movement? <laughs> Songs and Dances Dance. to Celebrate this day. Wonderful. And this Wonderful. is part of my new CD that just came out. And if you are in Iowa City on Thursday, put my, yes. plug my, 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 uh, my commercial here. Absolutely. Uh, Alan and I will be performing a, a recital of the works of the CD in a, yeah. in a, in a recital at Thursday at 7.30 at the Riverside Recital Hall. Wonderful, wonderful. So please go get yourself ready, and we're, we're anxious to hear it. And this is from your CD called Dreaming in Colors, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Great, thank you. <laughs>
Much Alan Huckleberry at the piano and Benjamin Quelio bassoon. So appreciate it very much. And that was for you, Trudy. And uh, now we're inviting some uh, guests to come up and speak with us. Just next to me here is Nathan Miller and Kelsey Kramer is at the far end. And we also have Hasti Baramand uh, next to Nathan and Kayla Casey. Uh, please welcome our guests. <laughs> For the rest of the program, we're going to be addressing the question of what it means to be the other. For the purposes of tonight's discussion, we're defining the other as someone whose color or tribe, political affiliation, perhaps sexual orientation, religion, language, gender, or disability leaves him or her outside the majority and perhaps without any voice in the world. Um, here to help us get started on this topic are a senior fellow in human rights and social justice at the College of Law, Nathan Miller. Uh, we have um, University of Iowa Center for Human Rights um, graduate assistant Kelsey Kramer at the far end, and two University of Iowa law students who were awarded Camille scholarships named in honor of Ken Camille, uh, who died a few years ago, to pursue internships in human rights. They are Hasti Baramand and Kayla Casey. And Nathan, I'm going to start with you and ask you if you can just give us a little bit of an overview from the perspective of international law to minority rights. Uh, <clears throat> International law and specifically human rights law contains a number of protections for minorities' rights. Uh, you can start with uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which has already been mentioned, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. There are instruments protecting the rights of indigenous persons. There is a convention on the elimination of all forms of discrimination against women, a vast body of international law that exists to protect uh, the other, whether we define the other as minorities, as a person with disabilities. Uh, the, the real trick, as, as a, either as a human rights advocate or as a person who is experiencing being the other uh, and having their rights violated, is, is enforcement, and, and that's always the difficult issue. And there's something like, there's something called a standing before the court. One has to have a certain kind of standing, is this right? Yes, uh, and standing before uh, the various international courts that are concerned with human rights is, is often very difficult. Uh, one of the, there are, let's say, three major human rights courts in the world. Uh, the European Court of Human Rights, the African Court of Human and People's Rights, and the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, all of which have substantial procedural hurdles that a claimant has to go through before they can actually get in front of the court. And one of the biggest and most pernicious ones is that most of those bodies require that you first exhaust the, it's called the exhaustion of domestic remedies. You've got to go through the court system in your home country before you can come. Of course, it's frequently the court system in, in the home country that is the difficulty. So standing uh, in front of international human rights bodies can be a very difficult issue. So tell us how somebody negotiates that problem. Well, there are a couple of ways. Uh, one, you can uh, 
be very persistent and take a number of years and actually get through the legal processes. But more, I don't, I don't want to say more commonly, but another strategy is to basically plead to those bodies, listen, it's not possible. My country is not going to make a good faith effort to adjudicate my case, so please let me skip over this and, and accept my case anyway. Um, and of course, all of those arguments um, are, are, are occasionally very complex legal arguments, yeah. so it's frequently the case that someone seeking access to those bodies will look for the assistance of international human rights lawyers or, or NGOs from uh, the mm -hmm. US and from Europe to help mm -hmm. them negotiate that uh, kind of a minefield. Right. Right, right. Well, our two Camille scholars here um, both had interesting internships during the summer, and uh, much of what Nathan was talking about here seems to resonate with what you told me about uh, what you did during your internships. Kayla, let me go first to you and have, have you tell us what you did. Um, I interned down in Harlingen, Texas. It's along the United States-Mexico border, uh, representing um, individuals who had been detained by immigration, mostly asylum seekers, uh, in immigration court. Well, and as you explained to me, there are many problems that, that these individuals had, but among them might be a lack of documentation of, uh, you know, difficulty in their own home country. Exactly. When I, um, when I read what this program was going to be about tonight, I immediately thought about how crucial documentation is to an asylum claim. When we, when we prepare an asylum claim to the immigration court, frequently the applicants they don't have any proof, they don't have any papers with them because they've, they've fled their own country. And so what we have to do quite often is rely on documentation to corroborate the story that they tell the immigration judge. And quite frequently, somebody's story might sound really crazy, but then you can show the immigration judge, no, we have proof that this happened to a thousand other people in this country too, and that's, mm -hmm. that's incredibly helpful to people. What were some of the other issues that you thought were, were exceedingly difficult for the immigrants who had been detained? Well, along the border, well, all over the country, people are detained in very remote areas. Immigrants don't have a right to an attorney, so it's incredibly challenging to, or to maneuver through the immigration system uh, without an attorney. The, particularly where I was working, a lot of the asylum seekers um, they, for example, I had a client who would come from Africa. He uh, didn't enter the country illegally. He presented himself at the border. He passed his, in his initial interview with the asylum officer, and then immigration proceeded to detain him for seven months. So there's, there's just an incredible, um, it's incredibly isolating to be in immigration detention. And I think that that's it's very frustrating for people who are already going through a really traumatic situation. Mm -hmm. Well, Hasti, please tell us what you worked on. I interned in uh, Washington, D.C. with an organization uh, called First Star, and they did primarily child welfare and child justice work. My work was mostly working with um, a na national survey, um, a report card grading state-by-state -state laws regarding a child's right to counsel in abuse and neglect proceedings. Um, I also worked a little bit with domestic, U.S. domestic sex trafficking of minors. 
Um, and I think it was very important work because when we think of human rights, it's always a very international concept to us, and we always think of um, out there, human rights out there, outside of America, outside of our borders. But I think there's very um, significant, important issues here at home, um, starting with our children, with um, kids being removed from home for abuse or neglect or being trafficked throughout the states. Well, so you're both um, getting close to the end of law school, I think. What do you plan to do once you're finished? What will your focus be? I don't have anything particular lined up yet. <laughs> um, <laughs> so anybody has any leads? But if um, I'm planning to do immigration work when I'm done. Yeah. And I'm also I'm planning to continue my child welfare, juvenile justice work. Yeah, terrific. Well, um, hi, Kelsey. This is Kelsey Kramer, and Kelsey works with the uh, University of Iowa Center for Human Rights, mm -hmm. and she's also a graduate student. And you've been with the center for a couple of years now, haven't you? Yes, this is my second year with the Center yeah. for Human Rights. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about what your involvement is. Um, well, I started out uh, last year as an AmeriCorps volunteer who got assigned to help the center um, build capacity and provide their support um, because they um, funding is obviously an issue with organizations in this field often. Um, so I started out that way and then um, applied to graduate school at the University of Iowa and um, was offered the position of program advisor as a graduate assistant for um, a new undergraduate certificate program in human rights that we introduced in the fall of 2010. Yeah, that's terrific. Tell us about this certificate. What does it take for a student to accumulate enough uh, um, work and hours to get the certificate? Well, the certificate program is an undergraduate program, and it's slightly more coursework than what a minor would be. It requires um, 18 semester hours of coursework. Um, six semester hours are um, core courses in um, human rights practice and in scholarship, and then they get to put together a course of study that makes sense for them in their major. So the goal is to allow undergraduate students to contextualize their undergraduate field of study in a human rights framework in a way that makes sense to them. Um, as Dr. Peterson pointed out, uh, often our view of human rights scholarship or research or advocacy is so narrow, um, but through our elective offerings and through the way that we structure the program, a student can see how human rights frameworks and scholarship are extremely relevant across disciplines at the university. Right. <clears throat> right. And I think you're, you're working with the center on this uh, certificate. Mm -hmm. I am working with the center on the certificate. Mm -hmm. I was uh, very pleased to be invited to teach a course uh, mm -hmm. in the certificate. So hopefully next year we'll get that off the ground. And, and that will be relate to rule of law and human rights in the aftermath of, of conflict. Really? Yeah, and there has been lots and lots of interest, I think, in the human rights certificate. I don't know how many students are currently enrolled in classes that would help them qualify. Oh, goodness. Um, I'm not sure how many students we have enrolled in the classes that would help them qualify, but we do have officially around 45 students who've declared the certificate program. That's and, great. Um, but that's not including students who may have heard yeah. about it and have enrolled in courses. No, I think it's terrific. And do you imagine from your perspective as a, as a scholar, is this going to be something that will help students when they go out to that, get their next graduate degree or they want to get into college if, they, if they're in law school, um, if they have expressed this kind of interest in human rights early on and they take the certificate, it can only help, right? Absolutely can only help. Uh, mm -hmm. 
in the globalizing world and, and international exposure, mm -hmm. international education, knowledge of international issues and ability to work and operate in an international context are just becoming so increasingly important in a whole range of disciplines mm -hmm. and a whole range of employment fields. It really can only be to the benefit of, of right. students to, to get as much of that kind of engagement as they can. Yeah, it would seem to me that even within uh, the discipline of law, almost nothing um, is, is so narrow that it doesn't have international implications. Isn't that true? Almost nothing is, yeah. is that narrow. And, and in fact, uh, I was just reading uh, an article by a teacher who said that they frequently open their classes by challenging their students to name an area of the law that does not have an international uh -huh. aspect. Well, family yeah. law, you might say. Family and marriage, no. There are yeah. plenty of international conventions governing uh, things like child kidnapping and movie. And so it's, it's actually incredibly difficult mm -hmm. to, to name any area of law. And I've spoken to private firms that are engaged in uh, high-end, private, commercial, domestically focused practice who find that students who come with international service and an international background uh, shine in their practices. Yeah. Um, Casey, you have been here, uh, Kelsey, you've been here for a little while now, and, and the Camille Scholarship I mentioned a bit earlier, and these two young women received the scholarship and named after Ken Camille. And, um, um, tell us about some of the other people who have gone off to do these internships under the scholarship and uh, the kind of work they've done. Sure. We uh, offer the Camille-funded scholarships to both graduates and undergraduates who secure their own internship opportunity in a human rights-related field um, through an organization, and they submit a grant proposal to us with a budget uh, talking about what they're going to be doing, where they're going to be staying, um, what financial needs they need, or what financial needs they're going to have while they're there. Um, and in the past, we've sent students, um, obviously, both um, students here uh, pursued domestic internships, but we've sent people um, with Engineers Without Borders into Africa. We've sent students to work um, in the field of human trafficking in various places. Um, there's been an increased interest in working um, in immigration-related internships in the U.S., so we continue to see that being an interest. But um, I believe we also had a very interesting uh, experience from a medical student who went and worked um, with a midwife in, I think it was Tanzania, two summers ago, and th those experiences were very interesting to listen yeah. to. Yeah. What is your particular research interest? My particular research interest is, uh, is related to the course that I spoke about before, which is how uh, human rights and the rule of law are related to one another. They're usually looked at as, as slightly different, and then particularly how that plays out. Uh, when you have a country that is recovering from and rebuilding after conflict. Mm -hmm. and Relating that to some of the things that Dr. Peterson was mm -hmm. talking about, you know, human rights and in, in the enjoyment of them, especially when you talk about it in a legal context. I mean, these things have moral force. Mm -hmm. You can stand up and say, please don't beat me, and that mm -hmm. has moral resonance. But when you talk about them in the legal sense, you're talking about the relationship of the government to its citizens. That relationship is largely defined by documents. You, you rely on documents to enforce it. And in war, those documents are frequently burned. They're destroyed deliberately or by accident, and, and you end up with a huge vacuum uh, and extreme vulnerability uh, among the population to, to continued exploitation. Um, and, and that relates also to another thing that Dr. Peterson brought up, which I think is really important to emphasize. 
you can talk about these large-scale human rights problems, and the courts that you asked about before require widespread and systematic abuse, really, to, to, to access them. But there are thousands and hundreds of thousands of awful human rights, pernicious abuses that happen every day um, that are not necessarily that big. And, and people can wake up uh, in many parts of the world uh, one morning and find a bulldozer in front of their house and then they don't have a house anymore and they have to go find some place to live. And if they don't have it, as they frequently don't, access to documents to show that that's where they lived, that they owned that house. They have no recourse. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and these kinds of things happen all the time. So the relationship of a citizen to the documents defining their relationship to the state is mm -hmm. extremely important. Um, and you often see that link broken mm -hmm. uh, by conflict. In this world of uh, you know, digitizing everything, I was thinking about this when we were uh, listening to you, Trudy, because I would imagine that in some ways it's just an incredible headache to see, you know, the multiplicity of, of, um, of things that can appear now in digital files somewhere or other, in email accounts and whatever, um, what's important, what's not, what could be damaging to someone, what might not. But um, in many countries, perhaps, there's, there's not this big... Uh, digital, you know, um, a backup for whatever might exist on paper. But certainly that the, the world is, is different now from the way it was uh, 30 years ago. There are, no? Uh, our world is different yeah. now. I'm not certain that the world of uh, very many, let's say, African countries where I've done quite a bit of work on behalf of a number of governments in Africa, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll mention uh, one, which is Liberia, where during the 14-year civil war, one of the things that, uh, that happened was people literally burned all of the copies of the laws uh, on the theory that if the physical copies of the laws were burned, then the law didn't apply to them anymore and they could do what they wanted, uh, which in a sense turned out to be true. <laughs> but now in Liberia, you, you have a situation where most of the physical copies of most of the laws are, are gone um, and can't be retrieved for a number of reasons because there really isn't an accessible digital backup. And so legal research in Liberia right now, going backwards, can involve seeing what people in the Ministry of Justice have in their desk drawers can involve going down into the basement of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and, and seeing what few remaining tattered copies uh, are there. And, and that's not uncommon, unfortunately. Uh, we can hope that some of the digital technologies will penetrate, but they yeah. haven't yet. Well, thanks. I want to congratulate both of you for, for the work you've done this thank summer. You. I think it's terrific, and I'm sure good future's ahead for you. And you too, Kelsey. Thank you for coming and for the good work you do in the pleasure. center. And Nathan, pleasure to meet you, and thank you for being with us tonight. Please thank our guests. <laughs>
Invisible Man. Invisible Man referring, of course, to the Ralph Ellison novel and the Iowa Connection. Well, you should come to the program and hear what that's all about, but I'm sure this will be a very interesting and insightful program. We'll be discussing a multidisciplinary literary, theatrical, and historical project called Iowa and Invisible Man, Making Blackness Visible. And that program will be here in this room at 5 o'clock on Friday, December 2nd. So next to me now is uh, Tom Cook. A great pleasure to meet you, a professor of uh, occupational and environmental health here at the University of Iowa. You're also connected with WiderNet, a wonderful project that is housed here at our university. And um, um, as you know, we're talking tonight about groups of people or individuals who, for one reason or another, are marginalized in societies all around the world. And certainly one of those groups, I suspect, in every society would be a group of physically or perhaps mentally disabled people who uh, just cannot take full advantage of what is offered in their society. And uh, you informed me of something wonderful that WiderNet is now involved in um, related to disability rights sure. around the world. Can you explain that? Sure. I'd be glad to. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank you for this opportunity and uh, extend the regrets of Cliff Misson, my co-leader my co, uh, of this project that I'm going to talk a little bit about. Uh, Cliff is managing another conference, uh, the TEDx conference today, and I'm, yeah. I'm sure that he's lingering as part of his responsibilities there. But um, uh, I'll give you a little background about dis disabled, and when we talk about um, broadening our definition of what we mean by the other, or um, uh, broadening our definition of human rights. Um, the World Health Organization and the World Bank jointly came out with a report just a couple months ago, uh, the World Report on Disability. And according to their estimates, uh, about one in seven people around the world has some sort of disability, including, as you mentioned, both uh, physical and, and mental. And of those people, at least 150 million have serious limitations in their daily function as a result of their disability. So um, it really is probably the largest other group in the world, if you really look at, look at the numbers and the number of people that are affected by disability. Um, I'll back up a little bit about disability, and I think Iowa has a very proud tradition with um, our Senator Tom Harkin, who was, as many of you know, a co-author of the Americans with Disabilities Act, which has served as a model for the world in terms of how to deal with people who have various uh, limitations and, and different abilities. Um, and that's been in, in force, as many of us know, for over 20 years. It's been incredibly effective in terms of what it's done for our society and, and a large segment of our society. Several years ago, about four years ago, the United Nations passed the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. And to a large extent, that convention was modeled after the Americans with Disabilities Act. It was an attempt to promulgate the same concepts about inclusion and and, uh, and such uh, on an international scale. Uh, and that um, convention, it's a, it's a UN treaty, has been signed, on, signed off on by well over 100 countries around the world and ratified, uh, well, signed off on about 140 countries and actually ratified by the parliaments of, of, about, uh, of over 100 countries now. Mm. Unfortunately, not yet, the United States Senate. Mm. Um, but given that background, um, the interest in promoting um, uh, the rights of persons with disabilities globally is incorporated in this UN, this UN treaty. The issue that um, comes to fore then is how do you enable different countries to enact these uh, uh, policies, procedures, um, how, do, how do we help them deal with uh, changing their attitudes and their biases? We know quite well 
that uh, in many cultures, uh, disability, uh, ours as well, but certainly in many other cultures, disability has a great deal of stigma associated with it. It deprives uh, individuals who are a little different from education, from work opportunities. Um, we know that uh, disabled women are more likely to be abused, less likely to marry. So, so the, um, the, the cultural issues around um, disability are probably similar to what they were in this country 40, 50 years ago or in other countries. So the, the, the challenge is to how do we get into the heads of the people and the, and the, and the politicians and the policymakers in, in developing countries uh, and, and try to expand their vision of what's possible and how we could do a better job of including people with disabilities. So that's sort of the background. And then, the, um, of course, with, with uh, Senator Harkin's interest in, in uh, not only promoting the rights of the disabled in this country, but internationally, uh, he made the connection with the fact that here at the University of Iowa, um, the WiderNet project is a project that's intended to provide educational opportunities and information for the 80% of the world not connected to the internet. I mean, we just had the discussion about digital archiving and such. It's hard for us in the U.S. to realize, but you know, four out of five people in the in the world do not check their email or text while they're listening to a lecture like this. Right. You know, the uh, the fact is they are unconnected and they're not likely to be connected anytime soon because of the infrastructure needs, particularly. And the the paradox is the poorer the country, the more in need of information the country is, the less resources they have. Uh, we, the earlier discussion was about Africa. The total penetration of the internet in Africa is 5% of the population. You know, and those are distributed, those people are mainly in the northern countries near the Mediterranean and in South Africa. Sub-Saharan Africa is, is virtually unconnected. The WiderNet project here uh, was started by Cliff Misson about uh, 10 or 11 years ago now. And his concept is to, if people can't come to the internet for all of this wealth of digital information, can we somehow take the information to them? So what he's been doing and his staff and a variety of uh, uh, different foundations and such have supported it over the years is to collect internet information or digital information, to scrape websites, to talk a thousand publishers into giving us their digital textbooks and such, package them on a disk drive, a physical device like we all have in our computers, and just deliver those devices to people who have no internet access. And the programming associated that with that is clever enough that it fools the computer into thinking they're on the internet. So if you're in rural Rwanda with one of these devices, a, a small computer and one of these devices, and you type www.who.int and you think you're going to the World Health Organization website, you find that it comes up on your computer as if you're on the internet, but you're actually um, uh, pulling it out of this disk drive. So a uh, very clever idea. So uh, the, the people in Washington put these two concepts together and said, we need to educate people in developing countries about disability rights and disability issues. Oh yes, we have this technology to do that. This is one way to deliver the mail, so to speak, to these people who are unconnected. So for the last year and a half, well, almost two years in December, we've had librarians here at the University of Iowa who've been collecting uh, information about how to implement this UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Things ranging from how steep should a wheelchair ramp be to be accessible, uh, 
model legislation that might be introduced in a parliament in a developing country. So policies, procedures, all the way down to the little details about building, you know, canes and crutches out of local materials and, and, and inexpensive wheelchairs and such. So we've been working in conjunction with the United States International Council on Disabilities in Washington to collect this information and then deliver it to the, these locations. Um, we have the funding to deliver 60, uh, to deliver these devices to 60 disabled persons organizations in developing countries. Um, and uh, the, we put out an application process, ironically, on the internet, which is kind of a, you know, uh, an interesting dilemma. You put out information on the internet to apply to get a device because you don't have the internet. But despite all that, um, uh, and we have, as I said, we have funding for 60 such devices. We've received over 500 applications wow. from around the world from disabled persons organizations who, who, who would, you know, who are really in need and, and would really like to have this collection of information. So far, we have almost a million resources on this, in this library. So every conceivable piece of information about disabilities, disability rights, and implementing and improving the lives of people with disabilities uh, it, that we've been able to find in the last two years is in these devices. We've delivered four or five of these as a pilot. They're, they've all been, we've gotten the feedback, we've got them, uh, the kinks worked out, and um, we're in the process of beginning to deliver the other 56 of these devices to, uh, to institutions uh, wow. in, in developing countries. Wow, so that's fantastic. I mean, it's easy to see how this would be a great resource for those organizations and, and uh, you know, disability rights groups and so on. But then, of course, the big, bigger struggle, I suspect, is finding the funding from the government, from local communities to, right. to help implement. Yeah, that, that's the difficulty. As I mentioned, you know, we have this groundswell of interest. We have 500 organizations that, that say we could use such information mm -hmm. uh, and only the funding for 60. So we were out beating the bushes to... Um, uh, to find some more funding. And of course, again, sort of the irony is that the organizations that, the, the non-governmental organizations that are struggling for disabilities in these developing countries are, are poor. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're, they're barely making it. They're often, I visited quite a few, uh, several of these organizations and there are four or five people in rural Tanzania who, who are interested because of family members or so on who have disabilities and they volunteer on their own time. They have very little resources. So we, the project really requires um, not a lot of resources, mm -hmm. but certainly requires outside resources to, to really serve the neediest of, of, of mm -hmm. the people involved. Well, you know, there was another University of Iowa connection that you mentioned to me in an email exchange, and, and many of you know about the Ponsetti Foundation, Dr. Ignacio Ponsetti and, and Club Foot and the amazing non-surgical techniques that, that he and his colleagues developed and, and have um, trained doctors and midwives, nurses around the world to, to use for these little babies who are born in various countries with Club Foot. Tell us a little bit about how this works. Sure. Well, these projects are not unrelated, but the, the Ponsetti International Association is a unit within the Vice President for Medical Affairs Office, uh, excuse me, in the College of Medicine. And the goal there is to train, um, our target is 4,000 uh, healthcare providers who can train, um, uh, who can be trained around the world to, to treat uh, clubfoot. It's a condition about 200,000 children a year are born with their feet turned under. You've probably seen some pictures of those, those kinds of cases. And um, Dr. Ponsetti uh, developed a, a fairly inexpensive uh, technique of serially straightening the feet and putting casts every couple days. And in a matter of about six weeks, uh, someone, little kid who's born with his feet like this can actually spend the rest of their life 
with normal feet and doing normal things. Mm -hmm. So, uh, for example, we've taken these the digital libraries, the, the, the granary digital libraries, and it's an easy matter to incorporate a portal or a special collection in that library that helps uh, educate uh, healthcare providers around the world how to, how to implement this technique. It, 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 sort of in summary, with the eGranary project, it's a, as I said before, like deliver the mail. It's, a, it's an information delivery system. It, it can not only deliver information about disability rights or about clubfoot, it can also deliver information about agri agriculture and geography. There's a total of about 20 million digital resources in this box. And uh, it's really amazing to, um, to see the, the, the realization when people in, uh, who otherwise never been connected mm -hmm. to the internet plug this thing into their donated laptop computer somebody gave them and realize that they can have access to the kind of information that we, we kind of expect we have at our fingertips all the time. Yeah, it's pretty terrific. And, and uh, you might just also mention that computers many of us would be anxious to throw away are very useful within oh, yeah. this project. Yeah, the, the, uh, the, the WiderNet project routinely um, uh, ships cargo containers full of you know, discarded or used computers. Mm -hmm. uh, the beauty, another feature of this, this system is that we'll operate very nicely on what we would consider old computers. You know, mm -hmm. A four-year-old computer yeah. uh, that's still very functional, it won't run the latest and greatest things off, uh, you know, in terms of whiz-bangy video games, but mm -hmm. it will run this uh, digital library. Yeah. So the prospect of providing both the hardware and this information store mm -hmm. uh, is really, a, 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 it, it quite literally changes uh, schools, institutions, hospitals, right. clinics uh, in, in developing countries. Yeah. Yeah, wow. Well, thank you. It's a very inspiring okay. story. Well, I thanks appreciate for the you coming, Thanks Tom. for the opportunity to talk about it. This is Tom it. Cook. Thank you thank very you. much. Thank you. Well, as you know, today is November 11th, 2011, not lost on most people, and it's Veterans Day, a day set aside every year to honor members of the military who put their lives at risk in service to our country, and we are honored to have retired U.S. Air Force Colonel Debbie Shattuck with us this evening, as well as Jennifer Fawcett with the Working Group Theater, and thank you both for joining us. Debbie is here, and this is Jennifer, and I'd like to go to you first, Jennifer, perhaps, to tell us a little bit about a really interesting sort of reality-based theatrical event that has taken place here in Iowa City and more performances will be given in December, and it's called Telling Iowa City. Yes. Um, Telling Iowa City is the, I believe it's the sixth, in what is really becoming a national series of telling projects. Uh, the Telling Project was uh, originally founded in Eugene, so it was Telling Eugene first. Uh, and uh, it's uh, gone to both coasts and down to Mississippi, but never in the Midwest. So this is the first time that this uh, unique project is happening here, and we're really pleased that it's happening here in Iowa City. It's a co-production between the University of Iowa Veterans Association, The Telling Project, which is uh, based out of Austin, Texas, and my theater company, Working Group Theater, which is a new theater company in Iowa City uh, founded by three graduates of the University of Iowa MFA Theater Program. Um, and what this project is, uh, it is, um, we start with interviewing um, veterans and also uh, people who are, have military service members in their families. Um, th those interviews happened in August. Uh, and we then invite anybody that we interviewed to join us in the play. We interviewed 16 people, uh, ranging from a gentleman who had been a, uh, in a Japanese POW camp during World War II 
all the way to uh, someone who did end up on stage, uh, who had just returned um, to the, back to the US from Afghanistan in the spring. So a huge range of experience. Mm. Um, we then take those interviews and with everybody who says, yes, I want to be in a play, we transcribe them and we weave them into a script. And then we begin training. And so we had nine veterans uh, decide to join us. Um, and we started training them in, to get them ready to be on stage and then presented them with their stories, sort of presented those stories back to them as one, uh, nine narratives woven into one. What is unique about this, there are a lot of plays out there that are, tell the stories of veterans, but they're performed by actors. And what is unique about this is that they are performed, and I'm kind of, we can quote signs because they're told by the people who experience them. One of the rules of the Telling Project actually is that uh, everyone speaks their own words and tells their own story. So we heard some really, really great stories in those interviews, but if that person chose not to come on stage, then we don't use their story. Um, so this uh, Telling Iowa City uh, ran for three nights at the University of Iowa. Uh, Alan McVeigh, who is the chair of the Division of Performing Arts, very generously gave us access to one of the theaters in the theater building. So we uh, had a sold out, sold out crowd last night, which was great. Um, and we have three more performances at Riverside Theater, December 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. Yeah, fantastic. Well, that's a, a good uh, segue into your personal story, what, what you, um, uh, what you said on stage uh, within this project, and then of course we'll have time to, to mm -hmm. go a little more deeply into your larger experience, but uh, what part of your life did you talk about in Telling Iowa City, Debbie? Well, for the play, I mostly spoke about my experience in the Pentagon on 9-11 when the plane hit. You were there. Exactly. Yeah. I was there, yes. Yeah. And so sort of talking about the aftermath of that, mm -hmm. um, I had a couple unique things happen in that I was in a van that ended up having to transport one of the injured civilians to the hospital. Mm -hmm. And I also had the opportunity to go to the alternate National Military Command Center. So I had some interesting yeah. perspectives that day. Yeah. Were you close to the impact area when the plane... I was about um, a quarter of the way around the building. It's a huge building. It doesn't look that big when you see mm -hmm. a picture of it, but mm -hmm. it really is quite huge. We heard the thud when the plane hit, but um, we didn't feel it uh, right. apart from that. And of course, you could have no idea what in the world it was. We Everybody did not just, know what was yeah. going on. And in fact, once we got out of the building, we could see smoke rising from the other side of the building, but it didn't seem to be a particularly large amount of smoke. Mm -hmm. I had seen a C-141 aircraft burn on a ramp, and it had just billowing amounts of smoke. And mm -hmm. I, I remember saying, I don't think a plane hit the building. There just isn't enough smoke. But yeah. clearly, uh, in the aftermath, when, when we saw photos of the other side of the building and the devastation, mm -hmm. wow, it was, it was amazing, the devastation. Yeah. So I, I don't know if it's possible to just kind of help us capture that, that moment for you. You ran into this... Um, part of the building that had been completely destroyed in chaos, I suspect? Well, actually, we uh, didn't see the devastation until later, uh, the next day when the photos uh, began to appear. So it was kind of surreal for those of us who evacuated on the Potomac River side of the building because for about 30 minutes, we didn't really see anything besides the smoke. But then 
uh, we began to see people laid out on the grass and uh, various medical teams began working on people and they were like, wow, uh, something bad has really happened now. We're starting to see the injured people and mm -hmm. that's when we, uh, we really knew it had been bad. Yeah. Well, um, you have had a long and wonderful history in the military. You were in the Air Force, mm -hmm. retired as a colonel, 25 years of service, mm -hmm. and uh, a woman in the military mm -hmm. and in a commanding position. Um, give us a little picture of what your life was like as you, as you entered the service. Well, um, as I mentioned in the play, it was kind of funny. Um, I actually uh, had no idea that I would ever go in the military. When I was in college, all I ever wanted to do was teach high school history and coach girls basketball. Uh -huh. And um, But my sister started talking to a recruiter, and I was just teasing her. I thought it was ridiculous and hilarious, but I heard the Air Force had a band. And so that got me interested because I was a clarinet player, and I thought, wow, you mean you'd pay me to play my clarinet? So I started talking to the recruiter. One thing led to another. I did end up going to officer training school and becoming an aircraft maintenance officer. I had the opportunity. The, the Air Force gave me two choices. I could be an aircraft maintenance officer or an intelligence officer. And having grown up during the Cold War and seen way too many spy movies, I said, I don't want to learn something that might get me killed someday. Mm -hmm. And I'm yeah. a single woman. I'd like to know how to fix my car if it breaks down. I'll pick <laughs> aircraft maintenance. Of course, I never learned how to fix my car. Um, but um, I very quickly, I, I was assigned to Dover Air Force Base, which at the time was the home of the world's largest airplane, the C-5 Galaxy. And being a, a young woman walking up and down that flight line, seeing those gigantic aircraft um, and helping to take care of them and watching them ferry supplies all around the world, including a lot of humanitarian supplies, it was incredibly rewarding. Um, and uh, shortly into my career, uh, the Air Force Academy contacted me and offered to uh, send me for my master's degree and have me come teach history there. So it was a dream come true. I'd honestly only planned to stay in the Air Force for four years, but uh, once I had the opportunity to then do what I really wanted to do, which was to teach history, and uh, when that tour ended, I had loved aircraft maintenance so much. I'd been in then by, uh, by that point by eight years, so I thought, we'll make this a career, and yeah. that's what we did. Yeah. Well, you shared a few really interesting experiences as a woman in the military, mm -hmm. uh, one of which relates to the officer's wives club. Right, Tell right. us about that. Um, I'm a brand new second lieutenant. I show up at Dover Air Force Base, and a female captain uh, kind of welcomes me to the base and is showing me around and says, and oh, by the way, don't forget to join the officer's wives club. And I said, what do you mean the officer's wives club? I'm not an officer's wife, I'm an officer. Yeah. And she said, well, but you need to join the officer's wives club. And uh, I, well, why? And she says, well, because they wanna make sure that the wives aren't jealous of the female officers. So you need to join so you can, they can kind of get to know you. Now, I never considered myself sort of a feminist, but um, I was a pretty stubborn person, and I absolutely refused to join the Officers' Wives Club, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, although I did go to meetings and get to know them, so they didn't have to worry, but yeah. yeah so that was just one example, the very first thing out of the chute, and yeah. so. Well, and it brings back another story that's actually earlier in your life, but um, you saw your mother become really right. dramatic it, and forceful. Exactly. Even though I was uh, not what I would call, again, a feminist, um, 
my, I was a tomboy. I loved sports. I played all the sports. I'd play baseball and football with the neighbor boys and on all the girls' sports teams. And in the, uh, in the early 70s, playing basketball in high school, we got the out-of-round basketballs that the boys didn't need anymore. We wore the boys' old sweat pants and clothes, and they didn't fit right. And we got the latest practice times available. Um, and when Title IX passed of the Education Act, um, which of course said that there would be no federal funding for schools that discriminated on the basis of, of gender. And uh, my mom marched into the athletic director's office and said, you need to buy new basketballs for the girls, you need to get them their own uniforms, and you need to get them good practice times. And so, yep, they resisted, of course, at first, but mom was persistent. And so I guess that honestly <laughs> stuck with me, and I'm sure it had something to do with me refusing to join the Officers' Wives Club when I got to Dover. Well, I'm sure it did. And, and another story that I thought was so interesting was you were, you were um, the supervisor of a certain um, male, I don't know if he was an officer, uh, but you were supervising someone who had a, a tasteless calendar on the uh, Oh, yes. Oh, actually, office. it was worse than that because it, I wasn't supervising him. He was the boss. Oh. And so um, at this point, I'd been in the service for two years. I was a first lieutenant, and I had a new job where I needed to go in and brief the uh, deputy commander for maintenance. And so he's a fairly senior-ranking civilian. And I walked into his office, and um, in the, those days, uh, a lot of the tool companies would produce these swimsuit calendars. And he had one hanging right next to his desk. And it, it just, I found it very offensive. And um, so I said some things behind the scenes, and nothing happened. And then I just continued to insist that that calendar had no business being in a a place of work where a woman would have to go in there and uh, brief somebody. And so, uh, again, it was a little nerve-wracking being a first lieutenant challenging the equivalent of a lieutenant colonel, and yeah. but the calendar went away. Okay. And I, I will say that's one thing that I tremendously respect uh, about the services is that um, obviously the services are made up of human beings, and um, so they're not perfect by any stretch, but the rules are there to protect people. And uh, when, when you do um, insist that the rules be followed, they are followed. So, and of course, obviously throughout my career, things got better and better and better in terms of women feeling welcomed and able to progress through the ranks. I always uh, followed the careers of women working their way up through the ranks. I was tremendously proud when um, Marcelite Harris became the first African-American uh, Air Force general officer, and she was also the first Air Force aircraft maintenance officer. So I sort of followed her career um, at, through my career, and uh, just very proud of women like her who broke barriers, the first women fighter pilots in uh, the early 1990s, women going into combat aircraft. Um, I cheered them on. It was a wonderful thing. Uh, 2006, we had the first woman pilot accepted onto the Air Force elite Thunderbirds performance team. So we're continuing to have a first in that regard. So, yeah. Well, I know you're very proud also of the memorial now. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, the Women in Military Service for America Memorial, uh, Brigadier General Wilma Vaught, uh, uh, it was an 11-year project to get that off the ground, but I believe it was 1997 that it opened in Washington, D.C., 
And um, in addition to just being sort of a bricks and mortar monument uh, or a memorial where women can go, they do a tremendous job in terms of archiving. Uh, one of the very first projects they did was try to collect the stories of every woman who had ever served in the military. Um, and, and that's an ongoing project. Um, they have an archives there where you can write in your personal stories and it's collected there in a computer and you can go and type in names uh, and see their stories. So it's just a yeah. wonderful project. That's fantastic. Well, now, after those 25 years in the service, you were obviously always interested in education, having mm -hmm. gotten your master's earlier. And now I know you're a PhD student right, here right. in uh, history and writing a book on baseball? The history of women who played baseball in the 1800s. And yeah. it's just a fun project. Again, I love uh, reading about women who did unusual things. And mm -hmm. there weren't a whole lot of women playing baseball in the 1800s. <laughs> and uh, it's obviously still considered a man's game. So I'm, I'm just mm -hmm. very intrigued by what was motivating these women to do something which at the time uh, was considered not a very feminine pursuit. Right. Well, and as a veteran, male or, or a female veteran, you're in classes with many, many students, I suspect, most of whom have not right, um, right. been in the service. Do you ever hit a sort of a weird moment uh, with classmates? Right. Um, initially, it was culture shock for me because you can imagine the uh, service people are very patriotic. I mean, and so for 25 and a half years, I'm immersed in this very patriotic uh, culture. And... Um, you just assume everybody's that way. And when I came here, it was a little bit of culture shock because I learned maybe it's not quite that way. So yes, um, it, at first there were some tense moments and I sort of clammed up. And But then I thought, you know what, I need to speak up and just let them know that uh, veterans are just like them. And um, so, yeah, it's, yeah, it's worked out really well. Yeah. And this telling project was a very important part of sort of that process really? of yeah. learning to speak up and share the yeah. experiences. Yeah, that's great. Now, the upcoming performances are at Riverside Theater. Mm -hmm. Do you have the dates in mind? Do you know? Uh, yes, it's uh, December, Friday, December 2nd, and Saturday, December 3rd at 7.30, and then Sunday at 2. Oh. Um, so, and uh, tickets are selling quickly, so we do yeah. recommend that people make reservations, um, and uh, it's a it's a great show. It's it worth seeing, like if I may say so myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, is this a project that you would envision doing another time, or is it a... No, yeah. actually, it's interesting that you asked that. Jonathan Wee, the executive director, was just up here and was talking about the possibility mm -hmm. of doing it in other, in, in other places. Yeah. Definitely, a gentleman approached us last night whose um, son is uh, of... Uh, Marine and lives down in Florida, and this project has never happened in Florida, and he was wondering how do we make that happen, and the, really the way you make it happen is you start the conversation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the reasons why this project came to be is that uh, there are so many veterans who live amongst us. I, I am a civilian, and um, I've been learning a lot, <laughs> working with the nine very patient people who are willing to walk me through all the the acronym, there's a whole culture that, that you just don't know if you're a civilian. Mm -hmm. But there are so many veterans amongst, uh, in our community, and more return, especially in these few months, I, I think it's over 3,000 people returning to Iowa yeah. um, in the summer and fall. And uh, for the most part, they are uh, an invisible uh, mm -hmm. population mm -hmm. um, and have various feelings about whether they want to be visible or sure. not, and sure. and 
we had a talk back after the show yesterday and some people were asking, you know, how do we, do, do you want to talk about it? Do you want to tell your stories? And, and we had really different responses, but a really big goal of this project is to have that conversation, is just to allow that conversation to happen, yeah. Yeah. to allow people an opportunity to tell their stories and to give mm -hmm. uh, those of us who have not been in the military a better understanding of the diverse, mm -hmm. uh, just the, the sheer diversity within the military. Not everybody mm -hmm. is out there holding a gun. Mm -hmm. um, lots of them are, but lots of them are not. Mm -hmm. uh, and so mm -hmm. uh, just, just uh, allowing the conversation to start yeah. And the, with the idea that the conversation doesn't end when the show ends, that the conversation continues in the lobby, and then maybe continues at home. Yeah. I just spoke to a woman yesterday who said, I'm, I'm calling my uncle tomorrow. I want to know what he went through. Yeah. And that is, that is the goal. Yeah. And I suspect there are stories that individuals just would not want to tell, mm -hmm. just things you could not talk about. I don't know if you had any such things that you keep to yourself. Well, I you will just... say that um, I, a week into rehearsals, I told Jennifer I didn't know if I could continue because it, it just brought up so, I, I ended up um, actually developing panic disorder from my mm -hmm. military service and so it brought back a lot of bad memories and uh, yeah. for several of the cast members, but I, we were really glad we pressed through it because it actually helped with the healing process by telling the stories. Mm. It, it, it was very cathartic. Yeah, that's terrific. Wow, well, thank you so much. Thank and you. and thank uh, you. enjoy the rest of Veterans Day. And thank you for sharing part of it with us. And thank you, Jennifer. Debbie Shattuck and Jennifer Fawcett. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And joining us now for this last segment of our program, um, will be three wonderful people. Carolyn Colvin is coming up here just now, and next to her is Margarita Maldonado, and Rocio um, Rivera is the third person here, so thank you for coming. Uh, we're going to talk about a transition uh, moment in the lives of, of some people who come to this country and resettle, begin a whole new life in the country they may not have been born in, and uh, I'm going to start here with Carolyn, uh, who teaches in the College of Education and has for a very long time worked in West Liberty uh, with adult literacy and teaching adult literacy classes, and I believe that's where she came to know Margarita and, uh, and then also Rocio. And Rocio, you go to the University of Iowa now? I'm currently a senior, finance and accounting. Fantastic, yeah. finance and accounting. Great. So, well, Carolyn, let me uh, ask you to give us some background on the classes you teach in West Liberty and, and the idea behind the adult literacy project. Let me begin by telling you how I heard about West Liberty, Iowa. I was teaching in San Diego. Um, I had come back home from a long day of teaching and through commuting traffic and I was a bit frazzled and I turned on NBC Nightly News and I saw Tom Brokaw standing in the middle of Main Street in West Liberty, Iowa. And the, it was a piece about this small rural Iowa community who had that had been so accepting of immigrant families, and um, it just stayed with me. Here I was in the mix of language and culture and complicated school systems in San Diego, and um, I, I, the story never left me. So I got an invitation to apply for a job here at the University of Iowa and came, and um, luckily I was um, offered the job, and. 
came here in 1991, and the first place I went was to drive 17 miles east of Iowa City to West Liberty. And um, I, I got involved with a community group there, a group of school folks and community folks. And it was around this group called Ganas um, that I met Margarita and her husband. They were the first people I met when I moved to um, Iowa. And the question that this group took up was how to get immigrant parents more actively involved in the school system. And um, so I attended for about a year and a half and got to know the members of the community and with some money from the, at the time, the Lewis Rich Turkey Processing Plant, I started the adult tutoring program because it became clear to me that maybe one of the reasons parents weren't participating in the schools was because um, of language issues, literacy issues. So that was the start of the tutoring program. Yeah. And, and so how many years have you been doing this then? We will start our 18th year wow. in January. Wow. And you have students, graduate students, who go over with you to help? I do. I have, um, I recruit pre-service teachers in the College of Education to um, come with me, and they serve as the tutors for the adult students, Spanish speakers, people from Laos, from Cambodia, from Vietnam, from Honduras, Guatemala, um, and the, the pre-service teachers in the College of Ed become the tutors in the program. And um, then we have a few students from West Liberty who have also voluntarily participated as well and served as tutors. Wonderful. And you do that, Rocio. Yes. I yes. Do. Uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> well, um, Margarita, may I ask you a couple of questions? How long have you lived in West Liberty? 21 years. 21 years, yes. yeah, yeah. And where did you come from? From California. California, yeah. Yes. Why Iowa? Why did you come here? Well, uh, because my brother-in-law invited us to come here to work. You know, because before we were uh, migrant workers, yes. Yes. working, picking fruit yeah. in Washington State, California, and Florida. Uh -huh. So lots of traveling uh, and yeah. no chance to settle the down. Whole year. Uh -huh. Yeah. And, you know, my, my brother-in-law invited us to come here to establish, you know, for better education for our children. Right. right. And that's why we moved here. Yeah. Has it been a good experience here in Iowa? Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Very yeah. good. And when did you start to take the adult literacy classes? Uh, two years ago. Oh, Margarita yeah. has come off and on. Um, over um, several years, but she actively became, she started returning in the last two years. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And is there a special kind of community that builds out of the literacy classes? Do you all feel like you are uh, family almost when you're in these classes? Oh, yes. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh, yeah, a lot of people go, you know, we enjoy every Thursday night. Yeah. Uh -huh. And thanks to Carolina and yeah. the tutors. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, because it's a good opportunity for everybody. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, Rocio is your niece. Yes. 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 And so, were you, were you born here in, this, in uh, 
Iowa? You, were you born here in this area? I was actually born in Florida, but um, I moved here when my parents moved 21 years ago. You so. did, you did, yeah. And um, so what, what have you seen during those years that you have lived in West Liberty? You've seen uh, new families come into town. Many of the parents study English uh, so that they can become more of a uh, part of their school children's lives, yes, mm -hmm. but part of the West Liberty community as well. Um, yeah. do, you, do you find that it's a very vibrant experience? Yeah, I mean, it's been great. I've seen new families come, and I think the more we, we move on, the easier it is to come and feel welcome to the community. Yeah, yeah. Well, now, your parents didn't go to college, did nope. they? No, my, um, my dad and mom actually barely finished middle school. So. Uh -huh. But it's important to them that you and your brother Yeah, go like to my aunt was saying, um, they, had, they took a very long journey to get here, and um, my parents always tell my brother and I that they don't want us working the jobs that they had to work. Yeah. So that's why my brother and I are here working yeah. our way towards getting our bachelor's, and yeah. we're very grateful for the opportunity that some may take you know, for granted. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you said you're in finance and? I'm a finance and accounting major. And accounting. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. You should have good job opportunities. That's great. What about your brother? My brother, he's a biology major with pre-med emphasis. Wonderful. Wonderful. Now, do you have children also, Margarita? Yes, I have six children. Six, six children? all boys. Oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> and I'm proud of them because... Uh, yeah. They, they like to come to the university, mm -hmm. and we support him. Yeah. You know, my husband and me work too hard to support them. Yes. And four of them, they graduated already from the university. Yeah. yeah. And two are still in the university. Yeah. So wow. I'm proud of Terrific. Um, so it feels to you as though this, this move to Iowa has been a, a, a a very good thing for you. You're no longer having to travel from one from area one to another to, to not, work. No, no and, more. <laughs> and what about the type of work you do now? Do you work in the, in, the, uh, in, in the food industry? What is the kind of work you do now? Now? Yeah. Okay, I work at West Branch, yeah. uh, on plastic products company. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Ah, great. I worked there for 18 years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so what do you feel are the, um, the most interesting things to have seen over these last many years that you've uh, been a sort of a kind of a member of the West, um, uh, West Liberty community? West Liberty is a much different community now than it was in 1991. I, um, the school system is incredibly strong. This right. tutoring program, the adult tutoring program, um, it's really a partnership with the university um, and the West Liberty School District. We have a mentoring program for about 30 West Liberty students who are recipients of the Advantage Iowa Scholarship. Mm. And um, along with Gabriela Rivera in the Center for Equity and Diversity here on campus, we have a mentoring program, and Rocio is a member of that um, that program, and the idea is to retain students from West Liberty and help them graduate. Mm -hmm. um, the West Liberty School District has a fabulous dual language program. It's received all kinds of recognition, and I can't say enough about the strong school district, the incredible teachers who work there. Mm. So explain to us what the dual language system is. What does that mean? Did you go through the dual language? I did not, no. It's 
It is not, it's unlike bilingual education. There's wonderful research to support dual language education. Um, students learn for part of the day in English and part of the day the instruction is offered in Spanish. It's a volunteer program um, for every dual language class. Half of the students are Anglo and half are Latino. And um, there are dual language classes now all the way through the high school. Wow. So it really helps students who are transitioning from Spanish into English. Mm -hmm. um, it helps their academic um, progress. And it also is training many, many Anglo students to be bilingual speakers when they graduate. Yeah, wow. And the, the teachers in the school system have to be very talented to be able to operate in both languages equally well. It's very hard to find teachers who can teach in both English and Spanish, but West Liberty has been, um, they've been masterful in recruiting talented teachers, some from Spain who come over and spend the year on a internship-like program mm -hmm. and teach in West Liberty. And um, we're hoping through this mentoring program that some of the West Liberty students will return and become bilingual teachers in the school district. Um, this book, Hollowing Out the Middle, that has been um, such a conversation piece here on campus, talks about how rural communities across the United States can be rejuvenated by immigrant populations who come and who stay, who give mm -hmm. back to the community. Mm -hmm. Well, this is one of the encouraging things, I think, as we look ahead to the future in Iowa. The, the numbers of Latino people in Iowa continue to grow. And uh, how, do you, how do you feel about that? You are, every year, less and less a minority here. Yeah, I'm excited. And here at the university, we've seen the numbers of Latino students grow, too. So yeah. it's very exciting. Yeah. One of the things I know people fear sometimes when they move to another country, although you weren't just in California, which isn't exactly another country, but, um, but you came here from California, I know. And, and sometimes, you know, when you move to a new place, you worry that you'll, you'll lose your extended family or that you will not have uh, the kind of cultural life that you may have enjoyed where you lived before. Is the Latino cultural life rich in West Liberty? Yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you maintain some of your your traditions. Yeah, we celebrate our, tra our traditions. Uh -huh. Yes. Like in September, the Independence Day. Oh right? yeah. Yeah. Um, November, the Dia de los Muertos. Uh -huh. Oh yeah. yeah. Yeah, we celebrate that too. Right. Uh -huh. Cinco de Mayo. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Yeah. And has there been much, uh, this has been going on for such a long time now with such success that I suspect that if there had early on been um, either confusion or, or some resistance to doing the, the dual language program and welcoming in uh, so many immigrants to the community, has, has any resistance kind of faded away now and people are quite happy with what's happening? I'm not sure that um, resistance, I'm sure there are pockets of resistance, um, but West Liberty is a community, it's, it's a community to be admired because of the local leadership in the community as well as the school district, as well as the parents who are becoming leaders in the community themselves mm -hmm. by taking up 
um, by being participating in community activities. So it's really a, it's a community, if you haven't been to West Liberty, you should make the trip down there, um, eat at some of the great restaurants, and, um, and just take a drive mm -hmm. around to see mm -hmm. how really remarkable it is. Yeah. It yeah. is the face of um, Iowa in some respects. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it is wonderful to see a small community maintain population and uh, not dry up like so many communities do when uh, people move to the bigger city. And so, yeah, it's terrific. And so you expect to spend time there in the future. You, you, you love it. I haven't been able to figure out a way to stop going. Mm -hmm. So um, mm -hmm. every Thursday night when the tutors and I go, there's a wonderful group of adult students waiting. Um, I have to say we learn as much from them as I hope we teach them with regard to literacy. I think literacy learning, I think education is a human right, and um, I hope we enact that every Thursday. Yeah. Oh, yes, I'm sure you do. It's such a pleasure to meet you. Thank you, Margarita, for coming. Your thank English you is beautiful. Much. And thank you. And thank you, Rocio. Thank you. And good thank luck you. with the rest of your degree. Thank and you. thank you, Carolyn. Such a pleasure to talk to you. you. So please just stay here, and we'll say our, our goodbyes. Um, we have come to the end of the program. I can't thank you enough for coming this evening. And thank you very much, Trudy, for sharing the evening with us and, and uh, for receiving the award that we were so uh, pleased to be able to give you. Uh, so I'd like to say thank you to all the guests who participated tonight to our wonderful performers and um, let you know also that this program will be available on UITV and on iTunes and uh, you can find it many places. But thank you for coming. I hope that you have uh, a good International Education Week. If you're interested in any of the programs going on, you can find a list of them at the International Programs website, international.uiowa.edu. A reminder that this program on December 2nd will, I think, be very interesting. Iowa and Invisible Man, it's in this room. Great, great guests from theater, from um, uh, history, from the English department. A lot of wonderful conversation that night. Um, so nothing more I can say here. Thank you for joining us. I hope you've enjoyed the evening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. <laughs>